This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. What I Saw in America by G. K. Chesterton Section 19 Chapter 9 Part 1 Prohibition in Fact and Fancy I went to America with some notion of not discussing prohibition, but I soon found that well-to-do Americans were only too delighted to discuss it over the nuts and wine. They were even willing, if necessary, to dispense with the nuts. I am far from sneering at this, having a general philosophy which need not here be expounded, but which may be symbolized by saying that monkeys can enjoy nuts, but only men can enjoy wine. But if I am to deal with prohibition, there is no doubt of the first thing to be said about it. The first thing to be said about it is that it does not exist. It is to some extent enforced among the poor. At any rate, it was intended to be enforced among the poor, even though among them, I fancy, it is much evaded. It is certainly not enforced among the rich, and I doubt whether it was intended to be. I suspect that this has always happened whenever this negative notion has taken hold of some particular province or tribe. Prohibition never prohibits. It never has in history, not even in Moslem history, and it never will. Muhammad at least had the argument of a climate, and not in the interest of a class. But if a test is needed, consider what part of Moslem culture has passed permanently into our own modern culture. You will find that the one Moslem poem that has really pierced is a Moslem poem in praise of wine. The crown of all the victories of the Crescent is that nobody reads the Koran and everybody reads the Rubaiyat. Most of us remember with satisfaction an old picture in Punch representing a festive old gentleman in a state of collapse on the pavement and a philanthropic old lady anxiously calling the attention of a cabman to the calamity. The old lady says, I'm sure this poor gentleman is ill, and the cabman replies with fervor, Ill, I wish I'd had half his complaint. We talk about unconscious humor, but there is such a thing as unconscious seriousness. Flippancy is a flower whose roots are often underground in the subconsciousness. Many a man talks sense when he thinks he is talking nonsense, touches on a conflict of ideas as if it were only a contradiction of language, or really makes a parallel when he means only to make a pun. Some of the punch jokes of the best period are examples of this, and that quoted above is a very strong example of it. The cabman meant what he said, but he said a great deal more than he meant. His utterance contained fine philosophical doctrines and distinctions, of which he was not perhaps entirely conscious. The spirit of the English language, the tragedy and comedy of the condition of the English people, spoke through him as the god spoke through a tariff head or a brazen mask of oracle. And the oracle is an omen, and in some sense an omen of doom. Observe to begin with the sobriety of the cabman. Note his measure, his moderation or to use the yet truer term, his temperance. He only wishes to have half the old gentleman's complaint. 
the old gentleman is welcome to the other half along with all the other pomps and luxuries of his superior social station there is nothing bolshevist or even communist about the temperance cabman he might almost be called distributionist in the sense that he wishes to distribute the old gentleman's complaint more equally between the old gentleman and himself and of course the social relations there represented are very much truer to life than it is fashionable to suggest by the realism of this picture mr punch made amends for some more snobbish pictures with the opposite social moral it will remain eternally among his real glories that he exhibited a picture in which the cabman was sober and the gentleman was drunk despite many ideas to the contrary it was emphatically a picture of real life the truth is subject to the simplest of all possible tests if the cabman were really and truly drunk he would not be a cabman for he could not drive a cab if he had the whole of the old gentleman's complaint he would be sitting happily on the pavement beside the old gentleman a symbol of social equality found at last and the leveling of all classes of mankind i do not say that there has never been such a monster known as a drunken cabman i do not say that the driver may not sometimes have approximated imprudently to three-quarters of the complaint instead of adhering to his severe but wise conception of half of it but i do say that most men of the world if they spoke sincerely could testify to more examples of helplessly drunk gentlemen put inside cabs than of helplessly drunken drivers on top of them philanthropists and officials who never look at people but only at papers probably have a mass of social statistics to the contrary founded on the simple fact that cabmen can be cross-examined about their habits and gentlemen cannot social workers probably have the whole thing worked out in sections and compartments showing how the extreme intoxication of cabman compares with the parallel intoxication of costermongers or measuring the drunkenness of a dustman against the drunkenness of a crossing sweeper but there is more practical experience embodied in the practical speech of the english and in the proverb that says as drunk as a lord now prohibition whether as a proposal in england or a pretense in america simply means that the man who has drunk less shall have no drink and the man who has drunk more shall have all the drink it means that the old gentleman shall be carried home in a cab drunker than ever but that in order to make it quite safe for him to drink to excess the man who drives him shall be forbidden to drink even in moderation that is what it means that is all it means that is all it ever will mean it tends to that in moslem countries where the luxurious and advanced drink champagne while the poor and fanatical drink water it means that in modern america where the wealthy are all at this moment sipping their cocktails and discussing how much harder laborers can be made to work if only they can be kept from festivity this is what it means and all it means and men are divided about it according to whether they believe in a certain transcendental concept called justice expressed in a more mystical paradox as the equality of men so long as you do not believe in justice and so long as you are rich and really confident of remaining so you can have prohibition and be as drunk as you choose i see that some remarks by the rev r j campbell dealing with social conditions in america are reported in the press 
They include some observations about Sinn Féin in which, as in most of Mr. Campbell's allusions to Ireland, it is not difficult to detect his dismal origin or the acrid smell of the smoke of Belfast. But the remarks about America are valuable in the objective sense, over and above their philosophy. He believes that prohibition will survive and be a success, nor does he seem himself to regard the prospect with any special disfavor. But he frankly and freely testifies to the truth I have asserted, that prohibition does not prohibit, so far as the wealthy are concerned. He testifies to constantly seeing wine on the table, as will any other grateful guest of the generous hospitality of America, and he implies humorously that he asks no questions about the story told him of the old stocks in the cellars. So there is no dispute about the facts, and we come back as before to the principles. Is Mr. Campbell content with a prohibition which is another name for privilege? If so, he has simply absorbed, along with his new theology, a new morality, which is different from mine. But he does state both sides of the inequality with equal logic and clearness, and in these days of intellectual fog that alone is like a ray of sunshine. Now my primary objection to prohibition is not based on any arguments against it, but on the one argument for it. I need nothing more for its condemnation than the only thing that is said in its defense. It is said by capitalists all over America, and it is very clearly and correctly reported by Mr. Campbell himself. The argument is that employees work harder, and therefore employers get richer. That this idea should be taken calmly by itself as the test of a problem of liberty is in itself a final testimony to the presence of slavery. It shows that people have completely forgotten that there is any other test except the servile test. Employers are willing that workmen should have exercise as it may help them to do more work. They are even willing that workmen should have leisure, for the more intelligent capitalists can see that this also means that they can do more work but they are not in any way willing that workmen should have fun, for fun only increases the happiness and not the utility of the worker. Fun is freedom, and in that sense is an end in itself. It concerns the man not as a worker, but as a citizen, or even as a soul, and the soul in that sense is an end in itself. That a man shall have a reasonable amount of comedy and poetry and even fantasy in his life is part of his spiritual health, which is for the service of God, and not merely for his mechanical health, which is now bound to the service of man. The very test adopted has all the servile implication, the test of what we can get out of him, instead of the test of what he can get out of life. Mr. Campbell is reported to have suggested, doubtless rather as a conjecture than a prophecy, that England may find it necessary to become teetotal in order to compete commercially with the efficiency and economy of teetotal America. Well, in the 18th and early 19th centuries there was in America one of the most economical and efficient of all forms of labor. It did not happen to be feasible for the English to compete with it by copying it. There were so many humanitarian prejudices about in those days. But economically there seems to be no reason why a man should not have prophesied that England would be forced to adopt American slavery then, 
as she is urged to adopt American prohibition now. Perhaps such a prophet would have prophesied rightly. Certainly it is not impossible that universal slavery might have been the vision of Calhoun, as universal prohibition seems to be the vision of Campbell. The old England of 1830 would have said that such a plea for slavery was monstrous. But what would it have said of a plea for enforced water-drinking? Nevertheless, the nobler servile state of Calhoun collapsed before it could spread to Europe, and there is always the hope that the same may happen to the far more materialistic utopia of Mr. Campbell and soft drinks. Abstract morality is very important, and it may well clear the mind to consider what would be the effect of prohibition in America if it were introduced there. It would, of course, be a decisive departure from the tradition of the Declaration of Independence. Those who deny that are hardly serious enough to demand attention. It is enough to say that they are reduced to minimizing that document in defense of prohibition, exactly as the slave owners were reduced to minimizing it in defense of slavery. They are reduced to saying that the fathers of the republic meant no more than that they would not be ruled by a king. And they are obviously open to the reply which Lincoln gave to Douglas on the slavery question. That if that great charter was limited to certain events in the 18th century, it was hardly worth making such a fuss about it in the 19th or in the 20th. But they are also open to another reply, which is even more to the point, when they pretend that Jefferson's famous preamble only means to say that monarchy is wrong. They are maintaining that Jefferson only meant to say something that he does not say at all. The great preamble does not say that all monarchical government must be wrong. On the contrary, it rather implies that most government is right. It speaks of human governments in general as justified by the necessity of defending certain personal rights. I see no reason whatever to suppose that it would not include any royal government that does defend those rights. Still less do I doubt what it would say of a republican government that does destroy those rights. But what are those rights? Sophists can always debate about their degree, but even sophists cannot debate about their direction. Nobody in his five wits will deny that Jeffersonian democracy wished to give the law a general control in more public things, but the citizens a more general liberty in private things. Wherever we draw the line, liberty can only be personal liberty, and the most personal liberties must at least be the last liberties we lose. But today they are the first liberties we lose. It is not a question of drawing a line in the right place, but of beginning at the wrong end. What are the rights of man if they do not include the normal right to regulate his own health in relation to the normal risks of diet and daily life? Nobody can pretend that beer is a poison, as prussic acid is a poison, that all the millions of civilized men who drank it all fell down dead when they had touched it. Its use and abuse is obviously a matter of judgment, and there can be no personal liberty if it is not a matter of private judgment. It is not in the least a question of drawing the line between liberty and license. If this is license, there is no such thing as liberty. It is plainly impossible to find any right more individual or intimate. To say that a man has a right to a vote, but not a right to a voice about the choice of his dinner, is like saying that he has a right to his hat, but not a right to his head. 
The end of section 19.